You're listening to audio from Calvary Gravenhurst in Muskoka, Ontario. For more resources or to connect with someone in the church, please visit calvarygravenhurst.com. This week's sermon is taught by lead pastor Benjamin Emery. Well, you can open your Bibles. They're now on the back of your seat. You have to reach around, or actually reach to the front of your seat. Now they're not six feet. It's in, within grabbing distance. And turn to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 to 22. And I was really encouraged by Pastor Mark's sermon last week. I learned some things that I didn't know. Maybe you did as well. One of the things I didn't really realize is that the, the one of the worst things the Bible says a Christian can do, or one of the worst things a church can do to a Christian is to, in unrepented sin, uh, not allow them to be a part of that church body anymore. And that we are probably the only society um, or generation that actually does that to ourselves. We actually choose to withdraw from the church. That was an amazing revelation that we actually do the worst thing to ourselves. Another thing I learned um, and that I've uh, now informed my wife is that I don't have to try and make her happy anymore. If you heard his sermon last week, we don't have to. It's not biblical happy wife, happy life. So I've told her that and if she's got a problem with that, Pastor Mark is going to straighten her out. Send all your wives to him. But Pastor Mark's sermon uh, was going through the first part of a thought that Paul is um, making, a point that he is making to the Ephesian church. And I'm going to finish that point or finish that thought. Um, The first point was that uh, when Christ saved us, our relationship to him was changed drastically, that we were dead in our sins and then we were made alive in Christ and reconciled to him. And he's going to finish that thought with also that we were reconciled to God and reconciled to each other. That's the big thought in this message. And so let's pray that God would help me. Lord, we are calling upon you. You are the God that um, brought little Isaiah out of the hospital early before uh, any of the doctors thought it was possible. And now he's here uh, with us in our presence. You are the God that uh, brought Rick out of um, the grasps of death. You hold power over death and brought him back to share a testimony here in our presence, Lord. You're the same God that wants to bring people who are spiritually dead to life. And you desire that for the whole world. You told us that. And so help me. A man whose intellect can't compare to Paul, the writer of this, uh, but the same Holy Spirit that lived in Paul is living in me. So help me to uh, talk about this great thing that has happened. In Jesus' name, amen. There was a uh, princess that was kidnapped by an evil sorcerer and cursed, and she was put in a tower, a high tower, far away from uh, any rescue. Well, uh, the good prince of the land heard that this bride had been kidnapped and put in this tower and cursed, 
And so he said, I'm going to go and rescue this princess. And he, he called upon two of the uh, insects in his kingdom and said, uh, you, caterpillar, and uh, you, a butterfly, go to the princess and tell her that I am going to be coming to rescue her in a couple of days. And so the caterpillar got on its way, and, and the caterpillar uh, was on his way, and the sun started beating down, and, he, and he, he was a rather grumpy caterpillar, and he said, oh, man, the sun is beating down on my head while I go to, to tell this princess that she's going to be rescued. Oh, it's always me that has to un- endure these hardships. And, and, and then, almost as if, if the weather had heard his voice, a gentle, cool rain sprinkled down, and, and the caterpillar, instead of being happy, said, oh, man, it's always raining on me. My life is so hard. And then as he got to the tower, he saw a, a vine going up to the window of the tower, a rosebush vine. And so he climbed on, and, and you could hear him going up the tower. Ugh, ouch, ugh, ah, ugh, ah, my life is so hard. Why do I have to do this? Ugh. And then he climbed into the uh, window, and he saw the princess, and he said, as he looked over, well, I don't see what's so special about you that the prince would want to come and rescue you. But anyways, the prince is coming to rescue you in two days. See you later. Bye-bye. The princess sort of stood there shocked, and and almost uh, two minutes later, the uh, beautiful butterfly fluttered into the window and and with a big smile on his face, and, and she put out her finger. He landed on her finger. Dear loved princess, he said. The prince has heard that you have been marooned here on this, uh, in this tower and he is coming to rescue you because he loves you so much and so greatly. And I have come to tell you that in two days, look out your window and you'll see him. The princess said, well, thank you, butterfly. That's so wonderful. But there was a, a caterpillar that was just here a couple minutes ago uh, who told me the same thing except he was miserable and grumpy and angry. I know him, said the butterfly. He was, in fact, me before I was transformed. Transformation is at the heart of the gospel. It's at the heart of what uh, Mark was preaching last week. It's at the heart of what Paul is preaching to you. That we humans, just as a caterpillar transforms into a butterfly, a beautiful butterfly, nobody likes caterpillars, I know a lot of women don't like them this past summer when they're falling out of the the trees on people's heads, right? They're disgusting little things, but everyone loves a butterfly, and yet they're the same thing. And we humans, Paul is telling us, we're once something that we, when we come to Christ, are now not. Transformation is at the heart of the gospel message. Christianity was never meant to be a personal faith. Oh yeah, it's personal in the sense that God comes to personally save each of us, to save our souls and to personally come and live inside of us and transform us by the power of his Holy Spirit, by the forgiveness and by the blood of Christ. Uh, It's personal in that way. But whatever happens in the personal realm when it comes to faith is meant to affect everyone around you, whether Christian or non-Christian. And and that's why Jesus, when he teaches us to pray, starts with our Father who is in heaven. 
hour. He's reminding us that it's not just you, my Father in heaven, it's us. That's why when somebody asks Jesus, what's the greatest commandments you can follow? He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and love others as yourself. Christianity was never a me personal faith, but an us faith. And, and we're going to notice that Paul is going to use some uh, language in verses 11 uh, that's gonna, and 12 that's going to tell us to look back. He says in verse 11, so then remember, and in verse 12, and at one time, he's reminding us, he's saying, look back to where you've come from so that you can realize where you are now so that you can know where you're going in the future. And it's a good thing for Christians to look back every now and again. Look back and know where we've come from so we can see who we were before Christ, uh, what God has done in us the last couple of years that we've known him, to, to actually see if God is working in us or if we're the same as we were because that is one of the signs that you actually are a Christian, that slowly, sometimes, sometimes slowly more than others, slowly over time, God will change you change your desires, change your personality, change the way you speak, change the way you love. So he'll say, remember, and, and Paul is talking, let's put this into context, to Greeks. Common, typical, garden variety, pagans. What's a pagan? Well, we were once pagans. Pagans are people who worship any god, uh, any god that is not the real true god. Uh, a pagan can be a mixed match of different gods and faiths. For, to the Greeks, uh, they were once a super uh, dominating force in the region. They worshipped many gods. In Ephesus, they meant they worshipped one specific god more than the others, Diana. And so he's talking to these typical, common, garden variety pagans. They were once a very powerful people. Now they're just a subjugated people. They, they were once very influential, now they've lost that influence. And, and what I want you to see is that the Greeks that he's talking to are very much like the Canadians that walk around us, very much like we once were. We, as a society, Canada, now are typical garden variety pagans. For most people do not worship the one true God. They worship a mismatched um, group of gods. They worship things. They worship money. They are a people who don't know the one true God. So we are like the Greeks. So the message is relevant to us. And Paul is going to remind the Christians there as he reminds us now what we once were. Verse 11, pick it up. We were once segregated. So then, remember, that at one time you were Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcised by those called the circumcised, done by the hand of flesh. At that time you were without the Messiah, excluded from the citizenship of Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise with no hope and without God in the world. What is circumcision? Well, I don't think I need to give a too in-depth of uh, explanation to that. But what does he mean by this? Uh, how did circumcision to the Jews mean anything and to the Gentiles mean anything? Well, it was a symbol to the Jews. That's how it made its way into our Western culture. It was a symbol that the Jews were specifically different than any other people group on the earth 
at that time. It was a symbol to remind the Jews that they served the one true God, that they were different, set apart, that God had uh, chosen them to be a light to all the rest of the world. His desire was that the nations would know him as they have come to know him through Jesus Christ, a Jew. But unfortunately, over time, uh, like many symbols, it became a meaningless custom. Uh, it's kind of like the way that baby dedication and confirmation and baptism in the West over time has just become a meaningless symbol. Something you do really doesn't have impact behind it. And that's what had happened to the Jews. It became a two-letter word, an insult to those who were not in the club, the uncircumcised. We're clean They're not. We are the circumcised. We are the chosen. They are the segregated. Segregation is an age-old human tendency that we have. We segregate each other by race, by gender, by social class. We do it by a lot of things. I'm sure you can think of some. For the Jews, circumcision lost its meaning and way, became a way for them to say, you're all not in the club, and we are the special people. We can go to specific places that you can't. This was the first big issue that the church faced when they became a church in the book of Acts. There was, the, at first, only Jews that came to faith. The apostles were all Jews, and then all of a sudden Gentiles started coming to faith. And the big question was now in Acts 9 and on is, are these people really in the family? Are they really, these uncircumcised people, part of God's family? Does he really accept them as the way they are, or do they have to go through the procedure of circumcision? And Peter delivers uh, God's, ultimate, or God's answer to them that, yes, they are in the family. They are not unclean. They are not separated. They are not to meant to be segregated from us. We are all the same in God's eyes now through faith in Jesus Christ. And Paul, in those verses we just read, says he was reminding them, right, of five things that they were once without, these people who now have. One, they were without a Messiah. They were without someone to save them. They worshipped Diana, who could do nothing to save them. They were once without a Savior. And this is for much of our culture. They worship anything. Power, money, pleasure, gods. They make up gods in their mind. A god to fit their own mind, their own likes, their own desires. But a god that cannot save them. They were without citizenship. What does he mean by that? Well, it reminded me when I read that of when I was backpacking throughout uh, various places and I came from Kenya into Athens and they lost my bags. Like they had no idea where my bags were. And so I found myself a a person in a foreign land, uh, a citizen of a different land in a nation with not much except the stuff on my back. I had a little pack on my back. And so I went to the place that could help me. I went to a place that only I could go to, a place I had citizenship, the Canadian Embassy in Athens. And they, because I showed them my passport, my citizenship to Canada, they helped me. And and he's saying, essentially, you were once without citizenship in the kingdom of God. 
but now you do. He says they were without covenants, meaning they had no promises from God. There was no guarantees from God. They were without hope, meaning they were hopeless. That's essentially the, the, the reality of anyone that says they're an atheist. They are hopeless. This world is the best they have. This is the most that they have to look forward to. As good as it is on earth is as good as it's ever going to get for them. And they were without God in the world, meaning God wasn't listening to them. They were without his help in the world. And I think if you really look at that, you can agree with me that that's very much a picture of our society, Canadian society nowadays. We have so much. It has so much, so much wealth, but it doesn't have what's most important. Our society is without Christ, without a Messiah that can actually save them from their sin and save them from all the tragedies we see going on in our culture that can't save them and transform them. We are more or less a pagan nation now, a post-Christian nation with little tidbits and flavors of, of the old Christian heritage mixed in with a lot of other things. They were... We are, our society is, without God. It is without hope. You can really see that. And you may say, come on, Ben. Are, are, are really people really feeling that hopeless out there? Yeah, a lot of them are. A majority of them are. You won't hear this on the nightly news, but I was reading and, and researching, and, and so I was doing a little background check on how things and people are doing, and, and I came across a report uh, reported by the NBC through the U.S. Uh, Census Bureau, uh, reported in 2017 about a 10-year study on suicide rates amongst those ages 10 to 24. And at that time in 2017, suicide was the second uh, most likely way that somebody between the ages of 10 and 24 would Die. It had rose. It had a 56% rise over a 10-year period from 2007 till 2017, meaning it had increased that much. But then I was reading that um, during the pandemic, suicide amongst those age levels have gone up to the number one. It is now the leading cause of death between those of the ages of 10 and 24 years old. Young people are. Asking questions. Is there a God? Is there a point to life? Is there anything outside of what society is telling me? I'm told I'm an evolutionary accident, that I'm just a byproduct of some random um, events that happened billions of years ago. That there is no right, that there is no wrong, that there is no truth, that there is no hope. And they're feeling hopeless. And you'd think this would get public attention, that the doctors would be shocked, that the politicians would say, we need to do something about this, and yet it's not getting much attention. And it's not just young people, though. It's also the parents and the grandparents that have built the society that they have handed this young generation, who have taught them that they are random chance, and that, that there is no really ultimate hope. They're not feeling so great. A lot of them are hopeless too. Nicholas Cage, if you're old like me, you would know him. He's not that popular now, but he was a big movie actor in the uh, 90s and early 2000s. Uh, he said this about his generation. He's in his late 50s. He's won Academy Awards. He's rich. 
beyond our dreams. And and he, he just married his fifth wife. And he said this, it could be that there's a hole in the soul of my generation. We haven't inherited the American dream, and yet there is nowhere for us to take it. I think he speaks of that generation. I meet so many people in their 50s and 60s and 70s. They've got so much of what they were promised, and yet they're miserable. And I think if you think about it too, how many times do you meet people that are really content with life, really satisfied with life? They're really like excited and they're not worried about dying. Not many. Not many. And Paul says that you were once segregated from God. You were once without these things. But now, but now, verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who are far away have been brought near by the blood of the Messiah. For he is our peace, who made both groups one and tore down the dividing wall of hostility. Don't miss that but now. The situation was pretty hopeless before, but now, through faith in Jesus Christ, you have been brought near. Through Jesus, our peace, there is no longer a dividing wall. If we can get the picture of the temple up, this is a picture of what the temple looked like in Jesus' time. There was many, many walls, which puts into context what we just read. There was the outer court for the Gentiles, meaning those uncircumcised. They could not go past this court. Even if they wanted to know who God was, who is this God? They would come to Jerusalem. It was one of the city's people from all over the world, the known world, would flock to. Known as the most religious and holy city amongst many. They would flock and they would come, but they were stuck in the nosebleed sections. If you've ever gone to a Blue Jays game, and I think all but one of the times I went, I'm up in the nosebleeds, right, where you just see these dots running around, you know, you're, you're trying to look through with binoculars. That was what it was like for the Gentiles. They were stuck in the nosebleed sections. Then there's a, another court you can see called the court of the women. So if you were a Jewish woman, you could uh, be in the court of the Gentiles, or you could go in the court of the women, the Jewish women. And then there was another court that male Jewish people could go. So if you were a, a Jewish male, you could be in the court of the Gentiles, you could be in the court of the women, or you could go into the court for the Jewish men. But then there was another court, a court for the priests. So if you were a a Jewish priest, you could be in the Gentiles' court, the women's court, the male's court, or the priest's court. But then there was another place called the inner court. And so if you were um, the high priest, you could go into this inner court uh, once a year and then enter into the most holy of holy places. And you would, he would go in, the high priest, trying to think clean thoughts because he was so worried that God was going to destroy him if he had any unpure thoughts in his mind. There was walls of division everywhere in that, in that realm, in that time. There was, in fact, signs along the walls outside of the um, courts of the Gentiles leading into the, to the other courts that said this in Greek and in Hebrew and in Aramaic. No foreigner may enter within the barricade around the temple. Anyone who enters will have themselves to blame for their ensuing death. That is what Paul is meaning by there is no more dividing walls. They've all been bulldozed down and you now have full access to God. Then he says, you've been brought near. You've been brought near. Well, 
Let's put that into context. In the old days, like I said, you couldn't get past those signs. But let's say you were a person and you're like, I want to be one of God's chosen people. I don't want to be an unclean person. I want to be in the club. I want access to where I can't get access to. What do I do? Uh, well, well, uh, sir, sir, you at the back. I've heard you want to be in the, in the club. You want to be uh, allowed in the temple. You want to be allowed in the inner courts. Well, come on up, sir. We see this, this nice young man uh, here. He wants to be in the club. Thank you, sir. I'm, I'm glad you don't want to be a disgusting heathen anymore. And, and, and you just have one little thing for you. We have one little procedure, and then you're in the club. And, and that is, I'm going to circumcise you right now with with no pain meds well that's how you get in it, it, sir 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 this is called the procedure of being brought near i don't know what his problem is and, and so that is actually a ceremony that if you were there and you were a gentile you could and you wanted in you could go to the priest and they would actually circumcise you there in a little room probably with, no, uh, with nothing to take away the pain. And then you were allowed in. So Paul is saying when he says you were far away and you were brought near, he's referring to that. There's no longer a need for that procedure. You've been brought near to Christ. So let's read verses 13 and 14 with that in mind. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were far away have been brought near by the blood of the Messiah. For he is our peace, who made both groups one and tore down a dividing wall of hostility. How did Jesus tear down that wall? Well, he goes on to say, by fulfilling the moral law in his flesh. Verse 15, he did away with the law of the commandments in the regulations, so that he may create in himself one new man from the two that's the Gentiles, the uncircumcised and the circumcised, resulting in peace. He did this so that he might reconcile both to God in one body through the cross and put hostility to death by it. When Christ came, he proclaimed the good news of peace to you who were far away and to peace to those who were near. Jesus fulfilled the moral law. He said it in in. Matthew 5:17 he says do not think i have come to abolish the law of the prophets i have come i have not come to abolish the law but to fulfill them and by fulfilling the moral law meaning jesus christ the son of god came and lived the perfect life was sinless he himself then became a sacrifice so that those through faith could be saved and by that he did away with the ceremonial laws did away with the sabbath laws did away with the dietary laws that were listed in Leviticus. He reconciled us. He reconciled the groups to himself. And that's the main point that Paul is going to end with. He did this. He reconciled you to God, but also us to each other. He said, uh, he started with, so remember. And then he, he goes to, but now. And, and, and so now he's going to say, how does this react in your life? How does this carry out? How does this intertwine into the daily living of this world? Verse 18, for through him, we both have access by one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's 
household, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, with Jesus Christ himself as the cornerstone. The whole building is fitted together in him and is growing into a holy sanctuary in the Lord, in whom you are also being built together for God's dwelling in his spirit. We have been reconciled to each other. And, and ever since, you can see it, the fall of man, uh, since Adam and Eve sinned, their children had uh, strife and enmity and hostility towards them. And it's been in our culture ever since. Whether by race or by nation or by skin color or by language or by tribe or by gender or by social class, by education level, by political level, by age, and lately by health status, there is enmity in between humans. And I've heard it all, unfortunately. I've heard so many things about why people don't want to be around other people. I've heard old people say of young people, I don't want to be around young people. Uh, They're weird, and they don't wear deodorant, and and their, their hair is all crazy. They're weird. I don't want to be around them. These are Christians. I've heard Young Christians say, I don't want to be around old people. They're weird. I've literally heard them say weird. And they smell like old musty clothes. I don't want to be around them. I can remember being in the city and hearing a so-called Christian say, there's so many colored people in the city. I don't want to be around them. I've been in Muskoka and, and had somebody say, there's so many white people in Muskoka. I don't want to be around them. But when Christ saved us, all of those things were done away with all of the hostility all of the trivial little things that used to separate us were done away 2000 years ago the church was born and the one prerequisite to get in was to follow and believe in Jesus Christ to receive his forgiveness and all the divisional things became nothing Wealth didn't matter anymore. Age didn't matter anymore. Gender didn't matter anymore. Health status didn't matter anymore. And Paul kept hammering these things to the people in his letters, Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, for there is no Jew or Greek, free or slave or free, male or female, since you were all one in Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 12 and 13, for just as there is the body is one, there are many members, and all the members of, are members of the body. Though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we have all been baptized into one body, Jews and Greeks, slaves and free. We have all been made to drink in one spirit. Then again in Colossians 3.11, here there is no Greek, no Jew, no uncircumcised or circumcised, barbarian, free or slave, but all in Christ are all. Do you realize that? How monumental this was in the first century to have uh, Romans, Jews, Greeks, men, women, free, slave, unclean, clean, all coming together and worshiping God, and eating together, and being friends together. Do you understand that this was not something that ever happened in the history of the world, and now it was happening? It was monumental, and it still is only one of a kind. The Christian faith is the only place that you'll find that. 
there is only two kinds of people in the world now. Those who are in Christ and those who are without Christ. And it is our desire, it should be our desire that those who are without Christ would be with Christ, with us. And there be no hostility between any believers. And so why is the church so divided so often? Just in closing, let me point it out. Why are there so many young people that don't want to be around seniors and so many seniors that don't want to be around young people? Why are there white churches and black churches and Asian churches? Why do we still let these things divide us? Well, I think it's because we don't really recognize just what God has done for us. Just what he did. We were once dead and he saved us. We have a sense of a kind of spiritual ignorance in our nation. We kind of think we're pretty good people and that, you know, getting God is, is all right. But I was pretty good. No, we were dead before Christ. We were spiritually dead. Salvation, reconciliation is the greatest thing that ever happened in our life. That Jesus came to save us. That he didn't come into the world to make your life easy. He didn't come into your life just to to give you nice stuff. He didn't come into your life so that you could necessarily live to be 90 years old or even to make bad men good. Jesus Christ came into the world to make dead men and women live. And at some point, whether you recognize it or not, you were without Christ. You were spiritually dead. And at some point when you came to faith, when you repented, your spiritual heart came to life. And I think we as Canadians don't really get that that was once us. And that now there is no more division. And and so because we don't really understand or really appreciate what we were then, we don't really appreciate what we are now, and then we don't really love like we're called to. We don't really look at the people around us and say, huh, They're forgiven sinners just like me, no different than me. Whatever their class is, whatever their race is, they're just like me. They're, in fact, my family for eternity. Jesus put it well. He said about a woman who had been forgiven, a pretty uh, deplorable woman in that day and culture. He says this in Luke 7, 47. Those who have been forgiven much love much. And sometimes I don't think we really get just how much we've been forgiven. And therefore, since we don't really get it, we don't really love much. I want you to just look around. Just look around. Look around at the people in the room. These are your family. If you are a follower of Christ, these are the people that you will live with in eternity In some countries, these are the only people that would actually like you and associate with you. Why? Because of that bond in Christ. And and, and someday that may be the way it is in our nation. This is your family, reconciled together through the blood of Jesus Christ. And that is his desire for us, to be a people that the world, the unsaved world, the hopeless world looks at and says, wow, look at how much... They love each other. I'm going to pray and then I'm going to invite Cam up to lead us in communion. Lord, thank you that we have been reconciled. I pray that Calvary would 
start to, we are, there are a lot of people who are loving each other, but God, we need more. We need you to really show us who we were before you and just how valuable each one of the people in this church is that they are our brothers and sisters so that we can represent you properly. God, forgive the church for the way they have fought and bickered over such minute things and lost track of what really matters. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this week's sermon audio. For more resources or to connect with us, visit calvarygravenhurst.com.